Welcome everyone to the Lighter Mind Podcast. In the Lighter Mind, we explore spirituality, personal growth, trauma, recovery, and the path to wholeness. The Lighter Mind Podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any forms of mental illness. We are not licensed therapists unless otherwise noted, and these are experiential conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Lighter Mind Podcast. I am Kyle, and I've got Mr. Allen over here with me today. And unfortunately, Mr. Crow will not be able to be with uh, be with us today, but we hope to see him on here and you know, another episode. But I have two very special guests with us today. I have Miss Mariah, Miss Darcy with us, and I work with them at a drug and alcohol rehab. And I have heard from multiple clients about both of you that you guys are very, very good at what you do. And talking with both of you just in passing and and just you know, walking around the building and stuff like that. I can tell that both of you are, for one, that you're very competent and that you're very knowledgeable about some of the information that you're passing along to the clients that we're working with and that both of you seem to genuinely care about the clientele and about what you guys do, which is incredibly important when we are working with such a vulnerable population. And... Um, I want to thank both of you for for honoring us and being on here with us today. Um, so uh, without further ado, I want to kind of pass it over to both of you guys. If you guys could just give us an exp- explanation of who you are and, you know, what do you, what do, you do? My name is Mariah Devonish. Um, I am a licensed social worker and I have a certification in EMDR. Um, I have been in the field for 20 years now, and I have been licensed since 2007. I have been working specifically with people resolving trauma, uh, focusing on domestic violence and substance abuse recovery for a majority of that period of time. Okay. I'm Darcy. Um, I have not been in the field as long. I, I got my degree because I was working with, for a long time, I worked in nonprofits with um, families who were living overseas and coming back, helping their kids transition. Um, and I was running into a lot of things that I was not equipped to deal with. So I decided to go back to school and get my license. And um, I'm a licensed counselor, LPC. I also have EMDR certification. Um, yeah, I feel like as my career is unfolding, I'm doing a lot of... I'm, I'm really drawn to trauma. Oh, and Otto wants to join the, the podcast. Come on, Otto. <laughs> Good dogs. He just well, wants, as usual, wants to be a part of. Sorry, Dogs guys. join the podcast. Um, okay. They will calm down. So... Okay. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, good. Okay. So... Um, I'll let Kyle start with questions. I'm, you know, I gotta admit, it's been a, a while since we've done the podcast, and I, I feel really rusty. Like usually, it's just chill. Like we show up, we sit and talk, and then I'm like, "Oh, I'm pretty stressed. This is kind of giving some anxiety, which is not yeah. normal for me. Like usually, I'm like, whatever. Like haven't played music forever. I'm like, I don't get stage fright. I don't care nothing. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, huh. so. Um, the trauma part's good. I think this is going to be a good conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're dealing, having dealt with 
families coming back from overseas, I think I was a military brat and we, you know, we moved a lot. And I think a lot of my issues in life came from that. Like, I mean, we were in Japan, but we came back when I was like three. So I don't really remember that much. But, uh, you know, growing up, it was always 18 months and then we'd move. So you'd like kind of get friends and then all of a sudden you're, you don't have friends. You have to go somewhere and make new friends. And for me, it was really uh, like I don't really have many long-term friends. Like Crow, I've known for 40 years and a few other people. But it was after my parents got divorced and we moved back here where my mom had grown up that I started to make these friends. But like I talked to one person from high school. I talked to no one from college hmm. at all, like mm-hmm. none, even though I spent, well, one guy from college. Um, so it's kind of weird, you know, like this dynamic that happens to children, military children, mm-hmm. children coming back. Um, it seems that you kind of have some, like, issues in commitment, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think uh, uh, my life has shown that. I mean, my wife and I have been married for 18 years now, so somehow I got past that. So my relationships, you know, have been super shallow and superficial, um, and I think that's a commonality probably. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, there's, so the, the term third culture kid refers to anybody who moved as a child but whose parents were not from that culture they lived in. Um, it's third culture because it's basically the common... So I'll use my example. I grew up in Brazil, so I have my Brazilian culture, my American culture, but I'm neither one or the other, so I'm this very unique third culture. And there are a lot of unique challenges with for people like us. Um, shallow relationships, inability to commit, fear of saying goodbye, all of those things are really unique to that experience. And even the moving around can be right. traumatic for a young person. So with that also, like my grandparents emigrated here from Greece, okay. and my mother was, you know, born to Greek immigrants, and my grandmother never spoke English. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So would that kind of be mm-hmm. similar to, so now you're looking at like the, the Gaboramate thing, like, you know, epigenetic, generational, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like... Inability to assimilate, maybe? Yeah. Is that kind of what it is? Difficulty assimilating, um, yeah. It also makes sense when people find, uh, for example, there's Chinatown and Japantown and um, Irish neighborhoods and Greek neighborhoods. People are trying to hold on to what is familiar, mm-hmm. even though they're living in a new city, possibly in America, for example. So hanging on to what they know and understand helps as a buffer sometimes with um, not losing their identity and what they know and what they understand, that culture shock can be um, pretty catastrophic. I don't know the language. I don't know the people. I don't know right. this culture in this new environment. I want to assimilate to some extent, but I don't want to lose what I feel most comfortable with. And so it's really hard to create and foster those bonds in the new community as easily because we're so familiar and comfortable with what we know. Right, right. And as military kids... That's really a challenge because, yes, there are other military families and we're living on a base or a post, but the idea that we don't um, 
we don't get to experience those other cultures as, as easily because we're around people like us. And then right. we lose what we right. have. We yeah. lose those relationships when so-and-so's parent gets deployed or stationed somewhere else. So we consistently and frequently, as you said, are losing those bonds and relationships, which can create a lot of insecure attachment styles. Right. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know... Um, Definitely. Well, the, and the, the Greek neighborhood's funny because when my grandparents came here, um, the neighborhood I grew up in, which is right down the street, was all Greeks. Oh. Like, it's funny because, you know, I'll drive down through that, It's you know, and be like, oh, that was where my uncle lived, and that was where, mm-hmm. you know, my cousin lived, and these Greek people were here, and these Greek people, so it was like a whole little Greek enclave, you know, so, mm-hmm. and, and that's understandable, you know, like even... You know, you kind of want to migrate to what's comfortable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then with the whole military, for me, the military thing, you know, like we were on base in Japan, mm-hmm. you know, and then um, every time we moved, it was like new things, mm-hmm. you know, new kid at school. And, you know, you know, the new kid gets bullied, right? So and we've had this conversation. We had Jill on who did that, you know, that internal Lots family systems thing. And I was like, ah! <laughs> you know? So, um, tough. Yeah, so, you know, I, it's so hard to, to explain to people mm-hmm. that haven't been there. Like, yeah, I have friends that grew up here, lived there here their whole life, and they just don't understand that how challenging it is. Especially as a kid, and when I was a kid, I'm, I mean, I'm going to be 60 this year, so there was no resources. Like, mm-hmm. we're going, get your shit together, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. And you get there, and you're like, this sucks. We'll tough it out, mm-hmm. you know? So that was basically, and that, I'm that way with everything. Like, we have these two little neighbor kids. I love them. They're six, they just turned six and eight. They live here, basically. <laughs> like, they're free range. They're, like, almost feral, right? <laughs> and, uh... Dad's, I think, in prison for robbing a gas station kind of thing. Mom's doing the best she can. But, uh, you know, he has the, 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 this, the little boy has the hardest time. And, you know, in, in the big book, they talk about children of alcoholics having, mm-hmm. a, you know, fear of saying goodbye. When it's time for him to go, I'm like, Gus, you got to go home. And he'll pick, wah, just get on the floor and just freak out. And I'm like, hey, man. We'll always be here for you. You know what? Tomorrow, I'll be here if you want to come by. On the weekend, we'll be here. I told him you can't come today until we're in the afternoon because he'd be like, what are you doing? But, you know, it's interesting to see that. Um, And then I try to reflect if that's how I was because my dad, you know, military, I think he had a drinking problem. I don't really know. He left when we were pretty young. Um, so I'm like, was I that way as a kid? Like, mm, you know, this fear question. of of being abandoned. Oh, I know, I, was, I had the fear of abandonment. We've yeah. talked that a All lot, right. but just that, like, not thinking you're ever going to see someone again when you're, you know, they're right down the street. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's I I can kind of relate that to my abandonment stuff. I mean, it my and I I was quite, I was wondering on whether or not that that kind of shows up in a similar way of just like abandonment trauma. Mm-hmm. As because that's that's definitely something that I can relate to of just like not wanting to I mean having that insecure attachment style and not wanting to commit to anything so that's I don't know that's interesting I mean that's the ultimate fear of anxious attachment right yeah it's like they're gonna leave me and I'm gonna be alone mm-hmm. yeah well and that I think that was you know my story like and it would be 
you know, I, 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 what was Chris always talk about how he visualizes or makes it happen. What and, uh, oh, it was manifestation. Yeah. Mani- so I manifested yeah. it. Like, you know, I'd be, I, I dated a girl for eight and a half years from college on. And it was just, it was a shit show all the time. Cause I was sure she was going to leave me. I was, you know, so I built these walls. I'm like, there's zero chance. I'm going to really show you who I am because a, you're not going to like it. Right, and B, you're gonna leave me. So I'd just be like this, like, you know, robot almost, like, which, you know, in the long run, fuck the whole thing up. Self fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yeah. yeah. I manifest. I manifested my failures. So. <laughs> so, so the question that I have for both of you is: Let's say that we have a we have a client that comes and sits down with either of you. Mm-hmm. How do you walk a client through that kind of stuff? Like, what does that look like? It helps to gather the information first, uh, gather the information through um, their history and experiences. It's uh, very common. We'll see patterns of anxiety or anxious attachment styles based on traumas, abandonments. Um, unfortunately, we see it frequently with people who have been adopted, whether they know they've been adopted or not. Um, working at a psychiatric hospital for nine years with adolescents, um, they, I would uh, do the assessment and the intake with them and uh, look at their pattern and their information. And then often those parents would pull me aside and say, he doesn't know this, but he's adopted. And so it's interesting when a child comes to you and says, I don't fit in, I don't belong, they're never going to love me, um, This, they're going to abandon me, they're going to leave me here, I'm not good enough. And you find out the secret, which is they were adopted at birth and they have no idea, but they display all those patterns of anxious attachment, uh, which is really fascinating that a child would know that. So we do gather that information um, in these assessments with all of our clients at this time. And I often see patterns of people being afraid of being abandoned and not good enough. And many of them were maybe their parents struggled with alcohol or drug addiction and were not able to p- provide emotional and physical nurturing, or they were adopted, or a parent maybe died when they were very young. And so they have that fear of abandonment because at two or three years old, they don't understand right. this parent You can't dying. process that. You can't process right. that. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to see that. And so so gathering that historical information is very beneficial because it starts to put puzzle pieces together for us and paint a picture. Yeah, I, I feel like any time... You'll just see the patterns in all of their relationships as they're talking through things. I feel like it's it's pretty easy to pick up. Avoidance, are, like the avoidant attachment styles, is a little bit harder mm-hmm. for me to, to see. But because I have anxious style as well, I can mm. sniff it out on people pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we also, we get to run groups at our facility. And we do groups on just attachment styles. And the clients, they eat it up. That's one of their favorite sessions, I think. Because it's, it's giving them answers to mm-hmm. things that they didn't even know had a name. Mm-hmm. This, and I think in substance use, you see a lot of anxious attachment because, I mean, that's what we're doing with substance use. We're attaching to something, um, and they're attaching to these substances that are helpful, quote-unquote, at the time, but are not serving long-term, deep-rooted connection, which I think is what we're all actually looking for. 
-hmm. Yeah, I agree that uh, that mm -hmm. that's the case, and I think you're anxious. I can't remember my attachment style, and I just did the. I just read the book on it. I'm like, <laughs> what am I? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna uh, guess it's anxious. Probably, I would agree I, with that. Maybe. Yes, uh, just hearing a little bit of your story, and yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I Fear got I, I got the the paperwork upstairs where I did the test. <laughs> the you know? test. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've hear a lot in substance abuse. Um, people in early recovery trying to work through these things and those with an anxious attachment style will tell me well the bottle will never leave me the bottle will always be there yeah right yeah. and that that's something because i i have that anxious attachment too i'm adopted and so that's that's where i get a lot of my fun-filled trauma from mm -hmm. but i think that that's when i i can relate to that very much so because when i when i had hit my rock bottom I actually cried like I was losing a loved one when I was when I was having to like say goodbye to drugs because it was like that that friend that had always been there for me mm. and like I actually I I mean it was very very emotionally painful for me to say goodbye to that because I hadn't had anyone that I could be like emotionally vulnerable with and that I could rely on for my entire life. And so I think that that might be like a, a ubiquitous thought. Yeah, and it's super sad to think that that's so hard to do, you know, to be vulnerable. Like, mm -hmm. I wasn't, in, I mean, I still put those walls up pretty quickly. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like a Star Trek kind of thing. Like, all of a sudden, it's like, that thing comes up, right? <laughs> and then I'm aware. But, you know, I think the key is being aware of that. Like, all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, why am I doing this? What triggered me to become mm -hmm. very... It's a great question. You know, and, uh, and it's just words, right? Or it's your reaction to words. Like, someone said something to me, and I'm like... You know, like yeah. I have a friend who's looking for, you know, Kyle knows, uh, I love Porsches. I'm a Porsche guy. So I have a buddy who's buying, trying to buy a new Porsche. Well, it's used. And he's just got his heart set on this one. And my brother's a Porsche guy. We love the cars, right? And my brother's like, that's the worst possible one to buy. And this guy for days is just like, and I, I found the term is it's called an ask hole. It's someone who'll ask you for advice and then does the opposite, right? <laughs> so, so I spent I seriously thirty hours last week finding the perfect car, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes back to the first one he wanted. And I'm like wow. I got so angry. I'm like Fuck you. Just figure it out yourself, you know? And I'm like, why am I so angry about this? I mean it's probably because even though I don't work my time is valuable. Right. Yes. And my knowledge is valuable. But man, I got mad. I was just like, <sighs> that's that's interesting. I was there's something that Brene Brown was talking about when she's talking about daring versus, or I think it's, she's talking about daring leadership, and she's talking about like the process of armoring up, <laughs> and that's usually usually it starts with like I'm not good enough, and then it m makes its way up to. Like, eventually it ends its way at, like, I'm better than you, which is, like, where, like, the actual armor can comes up. And there's there's steps in there, but I don't remember what it is. But that's usually what my process is. And I have that same, the like, the, that I, I call it armoring up. And, it, and it's, like, if I feel that I have been attacked or shamed or anything by someone else, like, immediately, well, within, like, five minutes, I'm, like, fuck you, I'm better than you. Yeah. And then I have to, like, unpack that. I'm, like, actually, I just feel inadequate right now. Yeah. Well, so it's not that I feel better, I don't think, in that. It's just that I love to research. <laughs> and, you know, like, I know, I know for a fact 
that this is a better way to go for the same money. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and you provided all that research, and right. you provided the time and the energy yeah. and the data, and you showed documentation and and all of this valuable information, and he potentially in your perspective dismissed it right and if right. you're dismissing it are you dismissing me and my efforts right and so the walls go up because how how dare you not listen you asked yeah. for information yeah. you asked right. mm-hmm. i provided an answer and now it's almost like as if you're rejecting me right. people with an avoidant or a anxiety a anxious attachment style would perceive that as you're 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 declining my offer you're declining my information you don't care about what I have to say. And that can feel like rejection and put up a lot of walls. Uh, A lot of anxiety can be derived from that, especially if you don't have a pattern of having really invested relationships in childhood. I invested a lot in you. I invested trying to get you the best answers possible, and you dismiss them. And that can be kind of a wound, an early wound or trigger. Uh, I didn't invest in many long-term relationships as a child. I didn't have a choice. Right. Then it became a pattern, and now I invested in you, and you dismissed it. Yeah. Wound, right. walls, right. anger, defensiveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, and, and so the, we'll, we'll go down this a little bit longer. So he, he's like, can I talk to your brother? So my brother, very wealthy, Porsche collector, mm-hmm. beautiful, you know, just like top-of-the-line car. So my brother spends like hour and a half on the phone with the guy. I'm like, wait, so you wasted my time. You wasted my brother's time. And then I think the biggest thing that uh, this guy's wife is a surgeon. He works in a bike shop, just like bro. He's a bro, you know, <laughs> kind of guy. Um, and I think he reminded me of the rich kids that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So we grew up on mm-hmm. you know, the little kind of poorer part of downtown. And mm-hmm. all these rich kids would be like, hey, Styles, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? And there was like never like a thank you. But I would, you know, I had this like, sure, I'll do that, you know, like a mm-hmm. pleasing kind of like I want to please this person. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes back to my mom, too, because she was like, oh, when you were a kid, you would always, you know clean the house, do this and that. And part of it was required, but my brother would be like, yeah, no, I'm not doing any of that. So I think I have this kind of like pleasing, like I want to make people happy because that's the only way they're going to like me. That's how you survive. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But now as I've gotten older, I've become a little less tolerant to that. But sometimes like this, I slip back into it because it's something I'm passionate about. I'm like, oh, cool. We're going to get someone else in the club. You know? (laughs) And then you're like, ah. This is just why. Why you could have just gone with your gut, your gut feeling, and just gotten the car you wanted, and then in a year you're going to regret it because it's not, it's not one that people really want. Come here, but it's the one you want. And I should have been like, whatever, dude. It's what you want. Get it. But instead, I'm like, ah, you know. So that triggered a lot for you. Yeah, I was pretty pissed. Yeah. Triggered a lot. You wasted my brother's time. You wasted my time. You're wasting your wife's money. Yeah. And uh, right. that brought up a lot for you. Yeah, yeah. Look how much I did for you. Why aren't you listening? Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, and I seem to have a pattern of friends like that. Like, mm-hmm. I always think of like George Costanza, you know, like, just do the opposite <laughs> of your decision. I have this friend for years, like, every decision you make, I'm like, this is the worst idea. And I'd be like, this is what I would do. And then he would do the complete opposite and fall on his face and just the worst stuff would happen. And I'd be like, well, maybe next time you do what I advised. But, you know, you can't control people. Like, I want them just to... But you would think after a pattern of (laughs) failure, 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 be like, 
maybe I should do the opposite of what I'm thinking because this hasn't worked, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, with my, like, Chris, Crow, and Crow, yeah. Chris, um, and Kyle, their addictions were much different than mine. Like, I don't know if my, I was just a binger. For years, like I started in college, like I didn't really party at all in high school, but in college, I started binging and I binged for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But I could quit, like I would quit for six months, but like, I don't care if I ever have the beer. But then I get bored. Like I think I drank purely out of boredom, mm-hmm. and partly it let me tolerate other people. <laughs> like I would go out with my friends, and I'm like, man, if I'm not really drunk, this guy is just annoying. But if I got drunk, I'd be like, ah, he's all right. Who cares, right? <laughs> so yeah. you know, and I'm not trying to say that what I would did was okay, right? Because I sometimes I get the oogies thinking all this. Like the other day, I just sat down. And I'm like, well, hopefully the universe forgives me for all this shit I did because there were some pretty bad things that I did while I was drunk. So. Um, but the drugs were never a big thing for me. Like I enjoy dabbling, mm-hmm. but you um, still have like a very similar experience through, yeah. through like your trauma and like all right. that kind of stuff that I do, you know, or that crow does, or at least, yeah, know, I think all three of us have, have similar. similar kind of trauma. I mean, Chris has the, I mean, his was really screwy with being military, but then mom, got out of the picture and dad had to put the kids in the orphanage mm-hmm. while he went to Thailand for mm-hmm. for his military job. So his is like mad. Mm-hmm. But I want to circle back circle back to this uh, mm-hmm. uh, adoption thing since Kyle's adopted. So do you think it's an like <laughs> auto <laughs> epigenetic kind of thing or is it the parents <laughs> there's like a sub uh, script that the child adopted and there's not the attachment to that child? What, what do you think? Otto, come on, bud. Um, when I was working at the psychiatric hospital, the, we had a reactive attachment disorder unit and those children were adopted um, or severely, severely neglected um, in infancy and therefore had the diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. And the psychiatrist who ran that program, he, he eventually retired, but he informed us that when um, the, an infant is in the womb, their brain develops differently. Uh, there's some differences to it because they know that um, there's not a connection between them and their, their mother. Um, and I always hold, held on to that. It was fascinating that when there is not that bond, there's not that connection, um, there is something different. There is a brain development that is different. So going back to the original story that I have working and admitting a child who said, I don't belong in this family. I don't belong here. I'm not part of this. I'm different. Um, they're going to leave me. They're going to get rid of me. I'm not enough. He didn't know he was adopted. But he had all of these fears of abandonment and fears of not fitting into this family unit that he had been chosen into. And I thought that was kind of aligned with what the the psychiatrist was saying. There is something fundamental that knows there's something a little different. Right. um, And so that can be a deep, deep wound for a lot of people. Uh, Some people work through that, and some people never know. But there is also a population that struggles with those feelings. I, I can't speak to a personal experience, but I, I would let you fill that in, uh, Kyle. 
Yeah. Can you? So I wanted to go back. Can you define what RAD is or what radical attachment uh, disorder is? A reactive attachment disorder. Or reactive. Yeah. Um, it is. It's a. It's a specific diagnosis where people have both avoidant and a, and the avoidant and. Um, Anxious. anxious attachment styles. So they have both of those. Uh, reactive attachment disorder kids can really struggle with intimate relationships. They become quite oppositional. Uh, they become violent when held or touched. Um, it is as if those physical contacts with those new primary caregivers are uh, most disgusting to them. Um, I don't feel safe. I am going to push everyone away, and if I need to kill you to do it, I will. Working on that reactive attachment disorder unit, um, I worked with a, a young child, and she strangled me with my lanyard. Wow. Um, a week later, oh they had breakaway lanyards. Um, it hurt. It hurt. And she strangled me with it. I wasn't touching her. We were walking in a hallway to go to another part of the building, and when we were alone in that hallway, she grinned at me, and I was like, oh, so cute. And mm-hmm. she grabbed my lanyard and dropped to her body weight and swung and swung hanging off my body off of the lanyard. And so I'm sitting there suffocating, and um, it was pretty traumatic. Um, I can still see her face to this day, and that was 15 years ago. Wow. Uh, It was very traumatic. Um, But she had liked me five minutes before that. But something about being alone in in a hallway, she snapped and thought, I'll kill you before you can hurt me. So and that's very common on that yeah, unit. That, we would experience that that's interesting, almost daily on that unit. One of my former brewer friend's wives uh, was working with kids. Mm-hmm. I think she has her master's in psychology, and but she's kind of a stay-at-home mom. And they warned about this one kid, like, never let that cat, kid have a pen or be alone with him. Because he he will stab you. Yes. And she didn't believe it. And then out of the blue one day, she's like, "Do to do?" And this kid's just like, "Ah!" Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Yes. So oh so on God. like the on the spectrum, rad would be severe. 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 That's like severe because I I can relate to less severe symptoms of that okay. um, as being as being more avoidant mm-hmm. and because I or. Yeah, I don't think my thought my thought was never I'm going to kill you to get you away from me. It was I'm going to self-destruct and I'm going to burn this bridge so that I look like an asshole and said so that I can distance myself. Right. And so but that's that's definitely more of a extreme version of that. Right. That's yeah. that's uh, being in those extreme situations. We were in a psychiatric hospital. Those right. kids lived there for a yeah. year or two. So they had to meet a criteria based on past behaviors and thought processes to get them into that level of treatment. But having an avoidant attachment style, um, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe to be close to people. I will do everything I can to keep myself emotionally safe, even if that means setting uh, myself up for abandonment mm-hmm. because it's easier to be abandoned than it is to be feel uh, connection mm-hmm. you know yeah. I don't want to feel safe mm-hmm. and connected to you that feels so foreign and awkward and vulnerable so if I find ways to self-sabotage this relationship I'm going to do that because it's easier to be alone than it is to be vulnerable so so it almost sounds like that's a very so it sounds like the rat is very circumstantial it feels like it's very it's almost rare to a certain extent and so does it just have to have like the perfect storm that has to occur in order for that to manifest neglect 
neglect. neglect okay. Emotional, physical neglect. Okay. Uh, perhaps family. Um, I, I wouldn't even say a death of a parent. It could definitely be as a result of leaving a child unattended for days, an infant unattended for days, and having that be a consistent pattern in their early life would lead to those extremes. Uh, parents are incarcerated due to drug or alcohol use, uh, maybe a baby born while mom was incarcerated, and the child is, um, even if that child is adopt, um, taken care of or adopted, or um, th that could avoid reactive attachment disorder, but it's often in cases of severe neglect and or physical abuse. Uh, shaken baby syndrome would be an example. Um, I've seen a lot of that. And how, how, do you, how do you deal with a client like that? Because that almost, like, to... to a certain amount of the population that would almost seem irreversible or like un unhelpable, you know. And so, like, but the, but I know that there's there's always help in everyone. But how do you how do you show up and support someone like that? That is a great question. It takes a lot of therapy for years, decades, possibly, to help that person develop a, a secure attachment style and to overcome those traumas. Even if we're six months old and we're shaken, we're beaten, we're assaulted, we're neglected, abandoned repeatedly, they don't have that uh, memory stored in their brain. Part of them reacts knowing that attaching is, is dangerous, but the body holds on to trauma. The body stores that in the cells. Mm -hmm. And so parts of them are going to react knowing that connecting to people is unsafe. Being alone in a room with someone is unsafe. Um, certain people who look like my abuser that I don't remember what they look like, but I will remember, parts of me will remember those flags subconsciously. Stay away from people who look like this. Stay away from people who look like it's that. It's like counter-transference almost. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how we protect ourselves. We mm -hmm. build those walls and those barriers and look for those red flags. And if we see one, depending on our how severe our diagnosis is, we're going to respond in any way to keep ourselves safe. So I don't know that little girl who strangled me. I don't know. I know she had brown hair, and I have brown hair. Did I trigger something in her to where she needed to put that wall up and literally strangle me? <laughs> to I don't uh, suspect yeah. you, she felt, because I've been in a room with you with clients, and you see clients deeply, and you connect with them deeply. When you were telling that story, my guess was she felt loved and seen, and she could not handle being loved and seen by you. Um, Possibly that can feel very icky to someone yeah, who has scary. reactive attachment disorder. Yeah, it's and for triggering. you to love me and then reject me is going to be too painful, so it'll be better for you just to be out of the picture. Mm -hmm. But we, we've had some rad clients come through. <clears throat> I don't really like labeling them that because I don't like the labels in general. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're seeing with that client specifically who keeps returning mm -hmm. is the consistency of kindness and understanding. And I heard you guys... I, in the Jill podcast, I heard you guys allude to this a little bit, that we tend to respond to um, these defiant people with discipline and punishment. And that's not at all what's going to create safety for them. The safety is going to come from consistent understanding, coming alongside, not coming at, right, to not mm -hmm. create a defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And this client keeps returning, and every time they return, they're more, they're, they, they behave a little more like they're safer like they're they're a little bit less intense i think right less um oppositional oppositional is the word yeah they're more open they communicate differently um they come asking for help mm -hmm. even if they're going to leave and discharge to go use substances they communicate that first versus um in previous 
admissions. They had been destructive in um, screaming, yelling, slamming doors. As they slowly, you know, return and they feel safer and safer with each admission, we've noticed that they've sat us down and said, I'm leaving, I'm going to go use. I wanted to communicate that to you. So we're seeing the transition Mm -hmm. um, of someone's progress and putting down those walls and those barriers and and not being defiant and oppositional, but slowly beginning to communicate and becoming more open and honest that they're going to self-destruct which has been fascinating to watch over the last year. I mean, they're so manipulating because that's how they survive, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but it, then it's it's our responsibility or invitation to respond to manipulation with kindness and not internalize it and let our own walls go up and then respond with frustration and wanting to kick them out and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's it almost sounds like we we have proven ourselves that 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 we are actually trustworthy mm-hmm. and. I, I feel like with, I, I can vaguely, vaguely relate to kind of testing boundaries with people to see if I'm, if I'm going to catch them doing something that I think that they're already doing. Mm-hmm. And it almost sounds like this particular client has gotten consistency mm-hmm. from us, mm-hmm. you yes. know, which yes. is going to validate this, this feeling of safety. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that people need to test. Because in the past, they've had negative experiences. So in this case, if I continue to test this situation, this person, this agency, the more positive experience I I have, as long as they're consistent, those walls can start to come down and they can start to feel safer to open up. But I know who you're talking about. Actually, I started with another one, and as you started talking, I was like, okay, yeah, that's the other one. So we have more than one, clearly. But yes, now I know who you're talking about. One of the people who did have a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder uh, before their 18th birthday, um, they were in, and I believe that's the person you're speaking of, they told me, I want to go cry, and I don't know how to without drinking. So I need to go drink so I can cry. And I thought that was interesting that they didn't feel that they physically or psychologically or emotionally could release emotions mm-hmm. without being under the influence of alcohol. And was that just a safety thing, I'm assuming, and the, the alcohol was just a blanket for them to feel safe? That's a great question. That's a, it's, a, it's tricky. It's very it's, tricky. It's, it sounds like it's a very tricky diagnosis to work with. It, it it's painful. Yeah. It's very painful for them. It's very scary. It's mm-hmm. very painful. I, I read a study or heard it in grad school or something. Studies are not my favorite, but um, this study said that if the baby didn't hear the mom's heartbeat within, I think, under 30 seconds, it could have attachment issues because it's hearing that heartbeat in the womb. It's there for nine right, months. Yeah. Like babies in the NICU also can be, they can get that diagnosis because they were starved from that connection. Mm-hmm. From that's why they put the baby immediately right on, on, the, chest. on the chest, right? Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. I was gonna ask about that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, how there's like an electromagnetic field from your heart that's like three feet out, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and you're in the womb, so you're close to that for nine months. You know, the babies, you know, like when we tried to have kids, which we couldn't do, we always wanted to do a home birth, mm-hmm. not cut the cord right away, put the baby here, let it kind of get that coherent kind of, you know, feeling that it's safe with the heartbeat and the energy it's felt mm-hmm. forever. And then I was like, well, with adopted kids, like that kid immediately is, you know, especially if it's given up for adoption at birth, mm-hmm. it's used to this electromagnetic field. Mm-hmm. It's used to this heartbeat. Then it has nothing, you right? Away. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's put in an incubator, or swaddled, whatever mm-hmm. they do. I don't know. But 
that's what I was. I started thinking with you, like, okay, you were adopted. You know, adopted people I know. You know, like the children. My cousin adopted a child from Greece because you know, and it was a mess. Like this kid, parents were drug addicts, gave the baby up immediately, and it's been nothing but, you know, bad yeah, ever predictably. since. Predictably, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, oh, wow, <laughs> who would have thought? Mm-hmm. Who would ever guess that's how that would have turned out? Which is terrible to say. Like, you know, the, like here is, it's just this. Everything is such a mess, right? I mean, we live in a society that's a mess and fraction, you know, everyone's like so like on edge and hates everyone because, you know, whatever, however you look or whatever you say. So you got all this stuff. And then we're trying to bring these kids into this world and hope that they're going to be healthy, right? And well-adjusted and loved. But, you you know, both parents usually have to work, so the kids like immediately goes to daycare, I mean, it just, I feel like where we're going is as much as the three of you in this podcast hopefully helps people realize there's hope. It just seems so hopeless sometimes. I'm like, holy shit, we are so screwed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at the little neighbor kids, I'm like, man, you know, the. Uh, Best of luck. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah. I'm the only male influence mm-hmm. in this kid's life. Which is why they keep coming over yeah, right. consistently <laughs> right. every day because you're safe, you're consistent, right. you're reliable, and you're available. Right. And therefore, that child in 20 or 30 years will look back and remember you and this home as a safe place. Um, not to say that their home environment isn't safe, right. but um, that you're consistent, you're safe, you're available. If mom is working, and she probably right. is, yeah. she has to balance being able to provide that um, consistent, safe environment in terms of food, shelter, clothing. But you guys are providing the next level, which is emotional availability, right. which makes yeah. sense. He has a tantrum when you guys mm-hmm. ask him to go home now. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, the interesting yeah. thing is they won't come in the basement unless we're with them, mm-hmm. which I think is very, like, they come down here and they're with us. We have the little TRX. They swing on it. You know, <laughs> They go in the workout room next door mm-hmm. and goof around. But if it's, I'm like, hey, go down to the basement and get this. No. And I'm like... Interesting. Or one day, they were goofing around. I said, I just pulled the door shut. They were in here, and I pulled the door shut, and the girl flipped out. Like, she's she was seven. She's like, open that fucking door. Wow. Like, I'm like, okay, what? I'm, I will never do that again. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I was just trying to get you to stop being such a maniac and... <laughs> Listen, because sometimes they, they're like, I'm like, don't, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Like, we don't care. You're not our mom. You can't tell us what to do. And I'm like, well, I can ask you to never come back, which is what I don't want to do because I enjoy you here. Mm-hmm. But you need to listen to me. It's my house. You know, and the other day he came and he found where I kept my change. He's like, you said you didn't have any quarters. And I found 11 quarters. I'm like, okay. He goes, I'm stealing them. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. I go, why would you steal them rather than work for me? He's like, well, Stealing is easier than working, and I'm like, "Well, yes." Well, he also like, said Dad was in prison. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm like, "Well, it's not," and I'm gonna let you take the quarters, but you're gonna owe me because I'll pay him. Like he'll go clean up dog poop. I pay him five bucks, clean up the dog poop. It's fine. He's he loves it. He's out there. He's hanging out with me. 
I said, here's what you're going to learn, though. When you get paid in advance for something, you haven't made an agreement on it, you might not like it. Mm-hmm. So next time he comes over, I'm going to make him do something that's going to not. I'm not going to be like, clean the toilet, you little monkey. <laughs> you know, But I'm going to be like, hey, Gus, remember when we had this conversation and you took my money without working for it? Well, here's so yeah. I try to teach him like there's trade offs. Like I learned that as a young man that there's everything is a trade off, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to teach him that there's trade offs. Like he grabbed my wallet and ran out the door with it, but he left his brand new electric scooter here. I said, okay, we'll call it a fair trade. <laughs> you know, and he's like, no, I love my scooter. And he like threw the wallet. He's like, give me my scooter. <laughs> you know, so uh, but it's interesting to watch him. Um, and see, like, like he flips really quickly. I know he's in therapy, and I think he's probably on meds of some sort. I haven't, you know, it's like one of those things, like, what's up with your kid, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, you'll see him just flip. All of a sudden, he's, like, happy, happy, and then all of a sudden, he gets this look in his eyes. I'm like, Here it comes. Yeah, Here and he'll comes. just, like, get, yeah. like, out of control. Like, I'm like, what happened two seconds ago? But... I was thinking about this because I know one of you is into the nutrition thing, right? You? Yes, okay. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I see this kid, like, we had Christmas stuff here, and I don't eat sugar. Um, and he'll, we had all these Christmas cookies and all this candy, and he's just like, like a kid. Right? So Kyle and I were discussing that, you know, you were into the nutrition thing. So, and of course, as your phones listen to you, Dr. Mark Hyman came up talking about all these studies with like kids with trauma kids who tons of trouble when they take them off like a standard american diet cut the sugar out put them on whole foods like 75 percent reduction in violent outbursts all this stuff and i'm like wow i was doing some research um recently and discovered that the mediterranean diet when consumed, you know, uh, six, seven months uh, consistently on a daily basis, will reduce PTSD symptoms in women by 80%. Wow. And well, that, I, of course, will yeah. work for children when we stop ingesting ourselves with processed food. Um, processed food is terrible for us. So It's poison. It's poison. You know, uh-huh. and, um, carcinogenics are in it, any type of processed meat. And so if we continue to put poisons in our body that can cause overstimulation, um, we end up having not only a child who has brain is wired differently, maybe a trauma response, fight or flight response is elevated, and we put toxins on top of that. We're creating a recipe for a disaster where I can't self-regulate. Right, I have right. no ability to regulate the amount of sugar, processed chemicals, uh, caffeine, and what's going to happen to me? I'm going to dysregulate. Yeah, it's crazy. I saw a little video the other day of a woman preparing her one-year-old's breakfast and it was a box of, like, Hostess Frosted Donuts she just crumbled up and put in a bowl. Oh, my God. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. So, I mean, when I, when I was, uh, so I worked with at-risk teens right before the pandemic. And then we all got laid off because everyone, ah! Uh, <laughs> but uh, I take a, a, a thing called phosphatidylserine. Okay. So it's a phospholipid. And every cell in your body has it. And studies have shown because we don't eat brains anymore and a few things that no one gets enough of this, right, um, in their system. So one thing it does is it really calms your brain, 
right? Mm. So I went to the head of this thing in the, you know, in, the, in the staff meeting and said, hey, look, I've done a bunch of research on this stuff. I think it'd be good for these kids to maybe supplement with this. And they're like, you, we can't prescribe drugs. And I'm like, but it's not a drug. It's just food. It's a it's something we're deficient in, you know, mm-hmm. we're deficient in all these things. Like I think, you know, luckily we've done our DNA, so I know what I mm-hmm. need, like what my body can't process, what it can't do to optimize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think generally, you know, I saw a thing the other day, like everyone could, everyone on the face of the earth could benefit from just a multivitamin because the food is, the soil is deficient, you know, everything, right. you know, they just like, package this crap you know and like i freak out like for the dogs like yes i seriously for, for their food i'm like no no nope, nope like i'm like go through like grain free gluten free blah 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 and then i'm like okay here's my 20 i can choose from and then i have to look at every one of them like that has canola in it i don't eat canola i'm sure not going to give it to my dogs because those little bodies are even worse you know or if i eat something that i know is going to have that um like we don't eat out because I don't know what they're gonna put, what kind of crap they put in it. Mm-hmm. We're getting, we get our own beef from a rancher. I know that I know how he raises them. I know how they're fed. Mm-hmm. Grass fed. Yeah, so Grass I'm getting fed. half a steer on the February first, which will last us a year. A bigger mm-hmm. one this year than last year. We're getting like 500 pounds. I'm like, well, that'll get us through. So, um, so there's this huge thing for me that. Like, and I think part of this podcast, like, we were doing the whole mind, body, spirit, kind of like Chris was the woo-woo spirit guy. Um, and we're kind of the mind, body. Yeah, I'm kind of, like, kind of like right in the middle between, yeah, like, so the analytical for me, and the spiritual. Like, <laughs> having done computer programming in the past, it's, you know, they say garbage in, garbage out, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So if you're putting just shit in your system all the time, how do you expect that you're going to be healthy and optimized, right? And the other day I went, I, I started going, I've been getting rolfed and it's been great, but I had taken like a year off. Wonderful. And I went to her this week and... Explain sh- what rolfing is real quick. Yeah, you lost well, yeah, oh, yeah. So rolfing, uh, Ida Rolf was a, a, a chiropractor who um, like a hundred years ago kind of got this idea that there's got to be more, like we're holding trauma in the body so basically, it's a ten. I've never actually done the series. It's a ten-week series where they start and they just start working on your body, and it's fascia. So it's pulling the bone muscle away from the bones because you just all this, and it's a lot in the hips. And which is, I'm, four days later, <laughs> I'm still so sore. <laughs> yeah. And she was working on my neck. She's like, I can't believe this. But anyhow, so it's kind of a way to use deep. Um, body work to help release trauma um it's yeah it's similar it's similar it's it's not but anthony does like the cranial sacral and doing all kinds which i'm gonna do next which is telling me but the nice thing is she's 70 i'm 16 Mm -hmm. she's like well i'm like this getting old sucks because she was working in and so i have one leg that you guys probably don't know this it's paralyzed from the knee down Mm -hmm. so i overcompensate with one of my glutes and she was working on it and she's like and there were these knots, and it's just, I mean, it's, I can't even touch still. Four days later, it's so wow. sore. But uh, the good thing is she was like, well, you're 20 years younger than me. And I said, no, I'm only 10. And she was like, really? And I said, yeah. I said, because I eat clean, and I eat healthy, and mm-hmm. I do things that optimize my body, like fish oil. 
you know, we were talking about you taking it, you know, and, and the sucky thing is, you don't know if it's rancid or whatever, but of course I researched it <laughs> and I found this one that's really well made, um, fermented and, you know, we don't eat how we evolved to eat, right? Like, Correct. so we're so, and again, we're so detached from, you know, like where we should be mm-hmm. and it's like industry and and all these everything's aligned against us to be successful mentally physically like they want us sick and unhealthy right for sure absolutely um there's some amazing documentaries I've been reading, uh, watching, excuse me, recently on Netflix um, and Amazon and all the other big networks that talks about um, who owns those meat packing industries right. and um, and and therefore if we get you sick we can keep you sick and then you'll need our pharmaceuticals to get mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. well because pharmaceuticals don't fix the problem they mask the symptoms right. so there's this whole industry that covers our food and then our drugs yeah they sell you the them. sickness and they sell you the cure right this, which is still not a cure <laughs> it's, <laughs> well, it's still they, not a cure it's not a cure they, it's a, the yeah. bandage but yeah. do you think that you're being cured right, right. but you do you need a medication for that medication to help with the side effects. So we're just compounding the problem. Mm-hmm. So there's a distinct correlation between gut health and mental yeah, health. Right. And so if we're putting damaging processed high sugar, high carbohydrate, uh, high processed foods into our food, we're creating or exacerbating mental health symptoms right. such as depression, anxiety, etc. Um, even schizophrenia and bipolar disorder can be exacerbated based on the foods that we're eating. Right. Those symptoms can be worsened. And so having a really organic, clean, potentially even vegan diet can be extremely beneficial or a Mediterranean diet are extremely beneficial to our mental health. Because again, our gut health is correlated directly to our mental health. And if we can, if we can manage gut health issues... Um, we can end up having better mental health symptoms. Even though we may still have the same diagnosis, we can reduce the severity of those symptoms. Right. Yeah, no, there's... And Chris and I were... Crow and I were talking about the gut-brain axis kind of thing Mm -hmm. the other day. Um, You know, but I think... I I am not vegan. I've tried vegetarianism. I felt terrible (laughs) uh, when I go more meat-based and plants that grow above the ground I feel like Superman right? wonderful then you know what works for you right yeah right. and I think evolutionarily you know we will disagree on on the vegan thing I there's a lot of vitamins you don't get a lot of I don't know anyone that's ever done it for long term you know it seems like mm-hmm. um, but there is I would rather see someone doing that than eating a standard American diet. Right. right. Standard like, American diet makes people sick, which yeah. is why most of our processed foods that come from America are outlawed and illegal in Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, um, like my brother in law is schizophrenic, so I've done some research on it. And there's a lot of things about the food thing, turning it around. Um, and I think the first book that got me on this path was either. Uh, Grain Brain, mm. which talks about how modern grains and the glutens eat little holes in your brains. Mm. Uh, oh. And, yeah. Delightful. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was uh, one called Wheat Belly, um, mm. which talks about how grain, modern grain will 
perforate your intestine and then you get the, the, the barrier gets kind of, you know, so, and I know I'm still working on uh, intestinal issues and you can, uh, when I went to acupuncture, she looked at my tongue and she's like, you got intestinal issues and these little, if you get little bumps, see these little bumps on my forehead? Hmm. That's usually a sign that you've got some kind of digestive tract issue. So that's been my last hmm. year trying to work on solving it. They, they, I took a look up there and everything was beautiful. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I and I haven't had a flare up like Kyle probably remembers a year ago. I would have these flare ups where I could barely move. I would mm-hmm. sit in the podcast, be like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this is so painful." Mm-hmm. Nothing. So I'm kind of on the right track. So, you know, I'll do like a, I'll add something. Um, like I'm going to add mastic gum, which is historically thousands of years used to help with intestinal issues. So, mm-hmm. um, but. The flip side is, like, think, thankfully I did DNA testing, right? So I know that certain probiotics are not good for me. Mm-hmm. So then I can, well, if you do it through one of the firms, then you can get custom vitamins for your genetic profile. Wow, that's um, incredible. Yeah, so my buddy, I'm, I'm helping him try to optimize. Like, he's already, he's a week older than me, and he's like, Rrr. And in great shape, but he's like, I gotta get better, 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 which is, you know, whatever. That's great. It's an endless cycle. Yeah. But so he <laughs> never ends. So he did this DNA mm-hmm. test uh, that I recommended to him, and then he got the vitamins from him. So they do it based on what, like, this gene means that you can't produce enough of this. So you're gonna need to supplement this. So I think we're kind of on the threshold of some really interesting stuff where. We can look at people's genetics and say, this is going to help mm-hmm. with this, this, and this, mm-hmm. and you need to add this, and your mental health is going to get better because you're getting this thing that your body can't produce. Like, we can't produce, um, Kyle's worse than I am, and Phoebe's yeah. worse than I am, but I'm still bad, um, folate, folate, methylfolate, methylfolate, so we have to get pre-methylated because we can't, in our cycle generate that right well and the sucky thing is in the 90s the u.s the well somebody in one of the corporations convinced the usda to start adding folate folic acid Mm -hmm. to wheat which for us is bad because it'll bind to that receptor but we can't utilize it so they're basically poisoning a percentage of the population that can't add that methyl group to it and i'm like there's no sense to it, right? And to circle around, at Christmas, we got some European cookies. And I'm like, I, I hadn't eaten wheat in years because I know what it does to me. I mean, But I'm like, screw it. I'm going to try these. Nothing, no effect whatsoever. Right? My naturopath mm-hmm. said when I went to Europe two years ago, you can eat any wheat you want. It won't hurt you. Yeah. You can have pasta. You can right. have their bread products. They use different type of wheat, and therefore you will be okay. Yeah. Because I, too, am allergic to wheat. I cannot ingest it. I will get violently sick. Right. Um, and so it's fascinating that we can go to other parts of the world, and it is accessible and safe. But because of the way ours is manipulated by the food industry, we can't ingest that. And it's really hard to function at full capacity mentally, emotionally, when we're physically sick. Right. right. And um, that's a really interesting correlation that three out of four of us have that issue. Yeah. yeah. Sitting I in this room. probably too. It's just undiagnosed. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I tried, like, some heirloom wheats that were grown here that are from 150 years ago. They found some seeds. 
Uh, it didn't affect me, but I didn't think that it was worth the gluten part because I know that gluten can cause problems no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, I remember when my wife and I were going to to therapy, uh, couples therapy. We were talking about that with the lady, and she's like, "Yeah, I can't eat wheat, but I went to Europe and I ate bread and everything. I felt great." Yes, you know. That's so interesting. Partly, I think it's the way that they grow the wheat because they mm -hmm. optimize it. But uh, new research I saw was they're thinking it might be the glyphosate, the Roundup, because mm -hmm. everything's Roundup ready now. So they just spray those crops with that. And, you know, right, and, and we it, know what Roundup does to people. There's so many um, lawsuits out there from yeah. like housing cancer and holes in the brain. Well, and a friend of mine got leukemia from it. And this is the this is a really sad thing, is he got on one of those class action lawsuits, and in the end, he got 25 bucks. Wow. I did. I got on mm -hmm. a class action lawsuit against Apple for their phone and the battery, and I got a hundred bucks. I'm like, so a phone battery that made my life a little yeah. inconvenient is more important than the fact that you gave someone cancer. Cancer. Mm -hmm. You know. So mm -hmm. we're. I mean, that that's a microcosm society. Like our technology is more important than the people. It is. Right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. So the question is: so we cater a lot to people, or we try to cater to people in recovery on this podcast, and to give them tips and tricks and stuff like that. So working within the field within that first like 30 days of sobriety usually, mm -hmm. how do you guys try to transition people into like wholeness? Like, I mean, mind, body, spirit, working on the diet, working on um, coping, like, you know, what, what does that look like for groups and stuff? We do address uh, nutrition and sleep hygiene in groups. Um, we have two groups a day, five days a week, and then a group uh, each day on the weekend to try and teach these skills because nutrition is paramount for rec early recovery and um, to function well, again, the gut brain balance, um, what you put into your gut affects your mental health. And if you're nutrition deficient, if you're amino acid deficient, you have are more likely to have cravings and a relapse. So we really talk on those. Yes, there are very important amino acids that help with cravings, and I take two of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, tryptophan is important, as in the stuff that's in turkey mm -hmm. that helps you get sleepy. So the if you have stuff. insomnia, uh, this is an excellent one. It helps with sleep and mood. Um, L-tyrosine, uh, there's a bunch of them. And so there's questionnaires online if you checked out amino acid deficiencies, you can look up questionnaires, answer those questions. And then the nice thing is a lot of those surveys will tell you what natural foods to eat. Almonds and spinach are consistent across the board. Almonds and spinach, almonds and spinach are everywhere when it comes to amino acid deficiencies. If you wanted to try and use your gut as the methodology of absorbing those amino acids, but there's also supplements available. We teach those in our classes. We teach about coping skills, triggers, self-awareness. We also teach about attachment issues and coping skills and cravings, how to address cravings, how to manage cravings as they come up and ride that urge wave that happens. And we also teach a lot of skills about community because a lot of people use in isolation, they use substances alone. Um, yes, they'll get it from their dealer. Yes, they'll buy it at the liquor store, but they often go home and use alone. So fostering a real sense of community is extremely valuable to people in early recovery, mm -hmm. which is why going to meetings can be so beneficial. It's not just about the message. It's about knowing I can go somewhere and be with people who are happy to see me and who care about my well-being. Mm -hmm. So we really try and foster that on a very consistent basis within our facility. 
and hopefully within other treatment facilities as well, they often have very similar um, protocols in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is we barely touch the surface. I think we give them tools. We help them look towards wholeness. We start addressing some of the underlying trauma. But, I mean, Gabor Mate is big on this. Like, we're using substances for pain. And so what's going to help their pain is much longer term than we're going to do in four sessions and however many groups they're in. But we can start building the skills and have them looking towards those, the reasons why they use. Um, And I think a lot of them do come to some significant realizations. And then the benefit is going to be continued therapy outside with someone consistent who can help you dig in deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what we do is we build them a tool, a toolbox, I think, and maybe start getting them to look deeper um, at at the the real pain that's underneath. Mm -hmm. We've talked about having that toolbox. Like most people open theirs and there's just a screwdriver in there. Mm -hmm. And then they try Mm -hmm. to use it for everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. So... Yeah, and I, I, I think that when I when I was first in recovery, a lot of this stuff, because I, I was forced into, you know, going to rehab and stuff like that, so I didn't want to get sober. And so a lot of the therapy sessions that I had were just kind of like planting seeds for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sometimes, because it is, it is heartbreaking when you, when you think you have a connection with a client and then they leave um, AMA that next day or ACA that next day. And then you, you know exactly what, what they're doing. And so a lot of my hope sometimes is that even if I did not, you know, really successfully bring you into sobriety this time, hopefully I left you with something that at at some later point in your life, you can remember and utilize. Most of those people that we see who choose to leave AMA or ACA, which means against medical advice or against clinical advice. We don't feel they're stable uh, medically or um, emotionally, psychologically yet. They choose to leave during those time periods. We often provide such a nurturing, non-judgmental, compassionate environment that many of them come back to us to try again. They come back to us because they know most of the staff here is in recovery. We've been there. Therefore, we are waiting for you in open arms when you're ready. And I think that sense of security and safety and respect and dignity and non-judgment allows people to return to the option of sobriety because they feel safe enough to do that because they weren't judged for not being ready in the past. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It is. It's so hard to watch somebody, and there's a lot of fear that staff experience because we're afraid of the worst-case scenario that they wouldn't be able to come back next time due to a car accident, a DUI, an overdose, which um, happens too. Which so it, it does happen, and sometimes, and I, and, I, and I really feel like it's we're kind of on, like, the front lines of it. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, we're in the mud with these guys, you know, every single day dealing with them at their most vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, within this industry, like, we do build connections with someone. I mean, there has to be boundaries within that, of course, but there, we do, it's, it's beautiful to be able to see someone like shed their mask and be able to like truly see that, like, I, I see you, you know, and I see how beautiful you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is difficult to have to see someone go out because it's, the odds are not in their favor. No, no they're not. Know? But it does happen. And, and for family members listening, it's important to know that someone with an active addiction 
99% of the time they don't want to be using, they don't want to be engaged in addiction. They just haven't learned how to manage existing without it yet. And so being there with healthy boundaries, of course, um, but love and compassion and non-judgment is um, crucial. Not judging someone for having an addiction is going to be crucial to them being able to step away from their addiction in a safe, controlled environment when they're ready is really important, which I think is why people keep coming back to us, mm-hmm. because they know that we're not judging them, that we care about them, that we'll be there when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks volumes, because when people are ready, they do come back, and they have typically much greater success when they do return, because they knew that it was safe to return emotionally and mentally to and that space. We understand that. It's, what, seven to eight average relapse for to get to the point of sobriety? So we understand that when they leave, they could be just getting closer to their sobriety, and that's what we encourage them to do, mm-hmm. even within their relapses. Um, yeah. Yeah, people will return faster. Um, they'll return with a shorter use period mm-hmm. or less severity. Sometimes they return with more severity but a shorter period of time of using. I went on a six-week bender, but I, I've been calling for four weeks to get in versus I've been drinking for 20 years and this is my first time in the door. They come back faster because they want to get well. They want to heal. They want to understand themselves to be able to understand how to um, get through this this difficult part in their life. And that's really important to hold space for that. And they want connection. We have some clients that come back because we're the closest thing they have to family um, because uh, their families yeah. have have shut them out. And I think we're finding that this whole concept of punishing people by pushing them away is detrimental because... It's counterproductive. It, exactly, yeah. 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 These yeah. intervention concepts of... Um, the punishment for your use is going to be that you are not part of our community anymore creates that anxiety and the isolation that then leads them to to use anyway. So Mm -hmm. you're just demanding a behavior and you're going to get the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these, a lot of our clients have families and friends that are doing that. Mm -hmm. And and that that almost kind of ties back into like the avoidant anxious attachment kind of stuff. It's like, well, you know, like you you just proved me right. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, You've pushed me away. You've demanded I change a behavior that I have no idea how to change on my own. And since you've abandoned me, since I wasn't able to get sober immediately, I know that bottle or that drug of choice will always be there. It's always been there. It will never abandon me the way you just did. Mm -hmm. So it kind of forces people back into that pattern because that's all they've been using. That's Mm -hmm. all they know. That's all they have. So our goal in a treatment center would be teaching them new ways to connect new ways to manage triggers, new ways to build healthy relationships. And that's why I think people keep trying Mm -hmm. because they know there's another way. They just don't always know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And so creating that space. And community. Sobriety needs community. I mean, we just can't. You can't do it without community, I don't Mm -hmm. think. That's my personal unstudied opinion. I would would have to agree with you, though, too. And I think that that's why, why... systems like Dharma Recovery and AA and Smart Recovery and all these little like different communities I mean throughout the world I think are so popular mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the people like uh, some of the clients that I've I've kind of discussed with that um, about like what is your support group going to look like after you leave here because that was for me like you like you said earlier Mariah like I you know a lot of us use alone that's definitely what I did mm-hmm. and that's because 
you know, no one can tell me to stop getting high when I'm alone, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, or at least that's one of the 100 reasons that I used alone. <laughs> but I think it is, it is definitely important to have that community to be able to hold us accountable within our actions, which is something that as, as clever and devious as we can be with an addiction, we try to get away with a lot more than we probably should. <laughs> and so it's, and we're very, you know, we're manipulative and cunning and, um, the same thing as alcoholism and addiction. It's, you know, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, so, but I, I try to encourage that, you know, among people. And I, and I do agree that I think that we, we as a company and not just like us in particular, but all the rehabs around the world are probably some of the first support group that mm-hmm. some of these people have ever had. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, that's probably incredibly yeah, impactful for them. key to know you're not alone. You know, like, A, you're not the first person to go through this. And B, we're here, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's always a tough thing, especially, you know, like for my mindset, like, yeah, I got to tough this out, you know, do figure this out on my Mm -hmm. own, Um, which is everything for me. Like, you know, asking for help is was really hard for me. Now I'm much better about it. But, you know. And I never drank alone. Like, in all my years of drinking, I was always like, yeah, that's what losers do, you know? And, like, I'd go to the bar to meet my buddies to drink. And if they weren't there, I wouldn't go in. Like, there's no way I'm going to go in by myself because that looks bad. That's drinking alone. You what will do people that. think of me? Yeah, right? Yeah. So I'd wait, and then my buddies would show up, and I'd kind of, like, hide in my car so it looked like I was in there, and then they'd go in, and then I'd walk in. Like, I couldn't be the first one in. Oh, it was, like, all awesome. structured. You had a whole plan. Yeah, together. like, I had this whole, like, yeah. this is my drinking protocol, right? Because, you know, but I never, ever, in all my years of binging, would drink by myself. At home, ever. Mm-hmm. Never. Like, if no one was around, I wouldn't drink. I'm like, yeah, nope, not going to do it. Don't need it. But then I'd be like, go to the bar, like, well, 12 beers and 10 shots later, yes, we're having a good time now until the next day. I'm like, wow, I really should stop doing that. I feel terrible. You know, and then after 20 years of that, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stop doing that because I feel terrible all the time. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just this whole, like, New world opened up. Do you, do you feel that that same need to be drawn to be surrounded by people and stuff now? Um, or is that kind of shed? I think it's kind of shed. Like I really like being alone now. And like a friend of mine's, uh, they're having a going away party for him. He got a, his wife got a good job and they're leaving. And it's he's a brewer, so they're like, "Come on, come have beers with us tonight." And I'm like. Okay, I'll be there. And now I'm like, shit, how am I getting out of this? Why didn't I just say, yeah, no. You know, my phone rang, which is funny because it was the ringers off and the volume's down, but it still rang. It was one of the brewers, like, probably checking to see if I was coming tonight to, you know, wish our buddy goodbye. And I'm like, if you don't do well with wheat and gluten, I wouldn't drink beer. Well, no. So I brewed fair. beer professionally for 26 years. That was my job. I wouldn't drink it if if that is. Yeah, no, I know. Something no, your I'm, stomach yeah, can't well, I'm well aware. Um, you don't beer, you don't drink often. It's though. a great excuse to to be there, but uh, not yeah. drink beer Christmas Eve. Ooh, you're, you're. that was the last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You you shed a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I love the taste of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd enjoy the taste, too. I'll, right. I'll become violently sick. Yeah. So for me, like, a uh, certain kind of beer, like um, this, this the, like, Lambic, if, I don't know, I'm going to go on a little weird beer thing. So there's this Belgian style of beer that basically is spoiled, right? So lactobacillus gets in there, pediococcus, all these bacteria that break down 
um, a lot of the proteins. So, and they're lactose, you know, good for your gut. So th- those beers, like, would never affect me because mm. all the stuff that's kind of not so good other than the alcohol, and even some of the alcohol goes down because acetobacter, which is what vinegar, makes vinegar out of alcohol, uh, gets in there. So it brings alcohol. So they're usually fairly low alcohol, full of probiotics. They don't affect my gut at all. Mm, uh, they are very acidic. So a lot of people are like, Ugh, you know, because yeah. they're not used to that. Um, I have no desire, you know. I mean, I can have a beer once in a while and be like, yeah, I love the taste. I did it for 26 years. I was super passionate about it. Um, you know, it was a great career because I never once said, this job sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is the greatest job ever. So uh, I was really happy, blessed to have that career. But now I'm like, uh you know, my wife still drinks beer. And I'll occasionally, like, she gets something I never had. I'll take a little sip. I'm like, yeah. It's good, but I don't need it, and I know that I'm going to feel like crap tomorrow. Even from one, like it used to be, you know, I could drink a ton, but now I'll have half a beer, and I'm like, oh, next day I'm like, why did I do that, you know? Mm. But I think it's because your body gets pretty clean, super clean, right? And then you're putting alcohol in it, which is a poison. I mean, your body naturally produces a little for processes, but I was reading the other day that alcohol is indiscriminate in the way it kills cells in your body. Wow. So you're basically just taking in a poison that's just killing brain cells, heart cells, whatever, right? Which so, is which is important for clients to know, I, w- I would think so. Yes, it is. Yeah, so it's, you know, uh, you know cuz everyone thinks it's just your liver, but it mm-hmm. actually kills cells everywhere in your body. So Yeah, um, and there's there's been like they've done like cat scans and stuff on people's brains on various drugs and it I mean there's little like holes, yeah. literal holes yeah, in the well, brain yeah. for what so, it does. Which would um, make sense to like wet brain, for example, someone who drinks excessively for a long period of time seems to have memory impairment, difficulty concentrating. Um, therefore, right. that would validate that it's eating some of the brain cells. Yeah, right. Right, right. okay. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's pretty, I, I like to, you know, for me now, since I don't work, you know, and this time of year I can't work on cars or in the yard, so I'm like, well, I'll go just, you know, go, go, go down, down the rabbit, rabbit hole. hole. <laughs> so, Read information. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, and then, like, you know, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, like, just crap science out there. They tell you this and that, and then, you know, you're like, then you read it, like, the whole, like, well, red meat's bad for you. And then, like, we had fed people McDonald's for six months, and, like, french fries, milkshakes, everything, but it's the meat that was the bad part. It wasn't the, the cooking oil or the french fries or whatever that is, stuff that forms when they fry stuff, and it's a carcinogen, mm-hmm. you know. I'm like, you know, so... Uh, a lot of times I'll see the science. I'm like, yeah, no, no, debunk, debunk, research it myself, find like double blinds, like, you know, a controlled study, not just like go eat McDonald's for a month and we'll see how your health we'll is. See, well, see I feel like happens. shit. Yeah, it was the meat. No. <laughs> you know? so, That's um, so funny. Anyhow, well, we're over an hour, so let's, uh, uh, you know, you've heard the podcast, so you know what we got to do. Yeah, so we uh, so I wanted to thank both of you, yes, thank ladies. You so much. Um, we're definitely a little bit rusty today. I mean, we're definitely we haven't done this in a while. Um, for all the listeners, we have definitely been on a little bit of a hiatus. Um, yeah, well, so Crow got uh, or Kyle got a job. Yeah, yeah. I, I, his... I am working with Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then. 
Crow switched positions, and he is working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. So, <laughs> which is highly inconvenient. Yeah, so the so. only one available every day would be me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so um, we're so we're trying we're trying to move forward with this new process and trying to yeah trying to figure out what we're going to do. But I'm very right. grateful that both of you guys were able to show up um, on an early Saturday. I know yeah. that that was <laughs> I was asking a lot, but I do. I mean, it was I always enjoy talking with both of you. Yeah, this you has know, been so great, and we'd love to have you guys back because yeah. I think as we get back into our flow we can get really going like today yeah. was like we were just like, we were just kind of shooting the yeah, shit today like we're just kind of with crow here he's yeah. the woo woo guy and he's in the industry and you know he's been sober for what eight years now so mm, something like that he's got that experience and so it's kind of like a three-legged you know chair and we're kind of two legs right now and mm-hmm. and we don't it, I'm like the like just sciencey logic guy. Mm-hmm. Kyle's in the middle, and Crow was the woo woo dude. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of like a little wobbly, and we're yeah. rusty. And you know, hopefully, I talked to him the other day, and he's hoping to work his schedule so he can rejoin us. That'd be cool. I think you guys just would like taking Crow. off Friday he's, mornings, he's a fun, fun um, guy, to come and do this or whatever. Um, we're trying to get him looped back in, but. I really do appreciate you guys showing up and thank you Thanks for sharing us. your experience and your knowledge and I would love for you to come back have another conversation with us we as, could do it a little bit more structured if we wanted to yeah well. like, I mean we were yeah. so we had talked about we had talked about like a, a little bit of the attachment and stuff like that mm-hmm. which is something that we have been trying to do since episode three on this yep. podcast is try to talk about like attachment theory mm-hmm. um, because we I mean, for one, like we are not therapists and we don't know that kind of stuff. And I don't know if we're even, I don't know if we can even like, we couldn't have a conversation. I don't know if we could. I try to stay away from anything that I'm not licensed to be able to speak about. And you guys are smarter than us, and so we like. <laughs> so, um, you know, you I know. mean, and we had, we had talked about doing the attachment theory one as I was reading the book, but mm-hmm. you didn't know I was reading the book about attachment mm, theory. That is true. And so, to me, it's fascinating. I mean, everything we've talked about, like when we had Jill here, was fascinating. Yeah, we had Danny here, was fascinating. We mm-hmm. had Raquel here, was fascinating. Like all the guests, even Adam. Adam was great. Yeah. you know. Adam, yeah, we like you know? we like learning stuff. We like learning. Yeah, stuff and hearing people's experience. Kind of like Adam's experience was unbelievable. Like it that was. guy, you know. And I saw him at the grocery store not long ago. He said. Coming on this podcast totally changed his tra- trajectory. He's doing his own podcast now. Good He's for getting him. a broader audience. So I'm like, cool, this is good. He's a professional then, MMA fighter that yeah. we have here. Yeah, yeah. Who was, yeah. Uh, spent time in prison, mm-hmm. overdosed on fentanyl, should have died, didn't, turned his life around. Hell of a guy. Super great guy. Like, mm-hmm. you know. And yoked. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I hugged him. A, I'm like, this guy's made out of steel. He's a, he's a beefy <laughs> boy. Yeah. So, right. but, um, you know, yeah, um, yeah. It would be good to um, move forward with all this kind of stuff. Yes. So. so, on our podcast, what we do at the very end is that we all go around and we say three gratitudes. Okay. Who would like to go first? Darcy, what are you grateful for? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I try to do this on a regular basis, but now all the things have exited my mind. Um, I am grateful for, right now, kind of the shedding process that's happening Mm -hmm. in the winter for me. I'm releasing a lot of things. Um, 
that no longer served me. Number two, I'm grateful for community. I feel like I have received a lot of people, including Mm -hmm. both of you, that are um, just adding greatness to my life. And three, I am grateful for um, the help I've received, I think, through Anthony, who is beloved among all of us, Mm -hmm. and my therapist, who are just awakening me to new things. So... Yeah, it's an awakened season for me. That's so awesome. I'm kind of grateful for everything that happens pretty Good consistently. It's so. powerful. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a hard act to follow. Would you guys like to go first? <laughs> uh, I'll go. Uh, so I'm grateful that we're doing this podcast again. It's been since September. And as much as I'm busy all the time, this is, to me, very uh, therapeutic mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and energizing, like, Anytime after a podcast, I get this, like, kind of dopamine hit that lasts for a long time. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like five minutes later, I'm like, well, that sucks. You know, it's a few days. I'm like, man, that was great. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to share our experience. We got to let the world know there's hope mm-hmm. and there's help. Um, so, and I'm grateful for you two joining us today for our uh our, the chrysalis coming and you know back out our rebirth. Um, so those are two, and then I'm grateful for my wife agreeing to do Saturday because she uh, she has a very stressful job and it's been uh, extra stressful lately. And usually on the weekends are just like you know unplug, decompress time, lay in bed, read whatever. And this morning you know I was like, get up, we got to get the house a little cleaner and. Uh, you know, so I'm really grateful that that she embraces that we do this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a, a nice thing. So mm-hmm. those are my three. Cool. Wonderful. You're looking at me, which implies <laughs> that I'm going next. Um, there's so much to be grateful for. Um, I'm grateful that I've learned how to take care of myself. I am grateful that I've spent time investing um, mentally, emotionally, physically in improving my wellness as a human being. It has not been an easy road. It is not a short road. It is a lifelong road, but I'm grateful that I took the time and energy to know that I was worth taking care of and to uh, invest in myself, whether that's um, me going to the gym, talking with friends, consulting professionals on my mental and emotional health, as well as to getting massages. Self-care did not exist um, for a long time in my life, and I'm glad I'm doing that. And so I'm grateful that I've taken the time to take care of myself. Uh, Number two, I'm grateful for my friends and my family. I have beautiful friends that bring so much to my life. I have an amazing family, and I have incredibly awesome teenagers. And to watch them be themselves is a gift. I am truly grateful to be their mother. Um, And the third thing is I'm grateful I've never done a podcast, and it was an exciting experience. Um, So I'm grateful for the opportunity, not just to speak, but that you looked at us and thought we had something to bring to the table, and I hope we reached even one person to let them know um, they're not alone in their journey Mm -hmm. and that they can do it. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. It's been enrichment. Enriching. Awesome. Awesome. And now it's your turn, Kyle. Oh, what are you grateful uh, for? What am I grateful for? Um, lately, I've been trying to get back to, like, the smaller things that sometimes I take for granted. And 
I think one of the things that I am grateful for is to have all of my basic necessities met in the middle of winter in Colorado because <laughs> it is frigid out there right now. And I think, but I think sometimes I do overlook just like have like the, the beauty of having running water and having, you know, food in my, my house mm-hmm. and having like a bed to sleep on. And mm-hmm. I mean, cause there's, there's been moments in my life where I haven't had those things. And so I, I am I am very grateful for that, especially when you look out and it's twenty degrees <laughs> or, <laughs> or, ne- or, or, or negative, negative seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I am also I'm also grateful for my sobriety. I've been trying to get back into being grateful for that as well because I I think sometimes like I have eight years sober and it has gone by so quickly that sometimes I forget like where my roots were Mm -hmm. and understanding that like my foundation, like if I didn't have this foundation of sobriety, like I wouldn't be here. Like I wouldn't be sitting in this room. I wouldn't be driving that car. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a job right now. Like it's like my life would be completely different. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that. And all the people that were able to bring me to this point and I'm also grateful I'm grateful that you guys were able to show up today it was it was lovely lovely to see you guys um I think you guys and what I said at the beginning of the podcast like I you know I do admire both of you guys I I do think you guys genuinely care about what we're dealing with right now absolutely and I think you guys have a lot of experience strength and hope that a lot of those clients need a lot of love these clients need love they definitely do because they haven't, a lot of times, they haven't got that, you know. They don't have that anywhere else, you know. And I think that that's why the clients gravitate towards you guys so much is because you guys have both really big hearts and that you actually care. Thank you. You know, so I'm very grateful that I was able to pull you guys on at this. Yes, thank you, you know? so are we. Yeah. No, yeah. it's fantastic. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, since you three see each other often, if, mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if you want to come back, maybe as you guys are pass, in passing, just kind of kick some ideas around, like, so we could have a more structured conversation. Like mm-hmm. this is this is our goal, rather than let's sit around and yeah. Like, I, pre- and it was I great. appreciate no, you guys you know, flowing with us. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, kinda, that's it was, what it was we pretty. Yeah, we were pretty. Chaotic. It's been a while since we've been yeah. since we've yeah. done one of these. It was organic. Yeah, it was. Yeah, which is which is a lot of some of the conversations we've had have been completely organic, mm-hmm. and they've been beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And this was. This I was, think this. This was too. It was a great conversation, but. You know, I think sometimes we need to be like, let's talk about this and really get in depth. Like, yeah, which this is, is, you know, which is helpful, especially if we're trying to target like a specific demographic and like, how can we actually serve you? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so to me, the conversation today was kind of just like life in general. Like, mm-hmm. these are things that are important mm-hmm. and we should all be looking at this rather than, mm-hmm. you know, like, this is. Which this is, is, which still has value. Oh, it has, uh, yeah. to me, it has it a lot has of value, value because. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I like to see the big picture, and the big picture is there's a ton of facets to being healthy. There isn't just like, well, I'm going to sober up and everything's going to be fine. Well, yeah, no, probably not, because you still got all this baggage you're carrying, and you need to. It's a tough. It's a very convoluted. Like you said, I got to shed. I got to shed this, Mm -hmm. right? So if you if you're if you're not shedding whatever it is that caused you to try to fill that void or find happiness it's not you know it's not going to happen right i'm not 
just stopping drinking for me wasn't enough. I still, <laughs> I still had a shit ton of trauma to work through, and I still mm-hmm. do. You know, I mean, and that's something. And we can and, and you know, I mean, my body tells me when. When I've got a, a woman driving her elbow into my butt cheek, and I'm like, you know, and she was like, she's like, your pain threshold is so high. She's like, most people will be screaming in agony. I'm like, when you're in pain, because I, I mean, I, I f- did physical labor for so long, and my back is like the, uh, you see the MRI, you're like, the doctor's like, you're a mess, mm-hmm. you know. So I've lived in this agonizing pain forever, you know. So I'm like, to her, I'm like, it doesn't. The only thing that really hurt was the last day she did this sinus thing. Mm. And she sticks her finger this far up your sinus, all the way, pinkies up, and is, like, pressing around in your sinuses. Wow. And you're like, she's like, this might hurt a little bit. She's, like, creasing up her finger. I'm like, I don't even know <laughs> where you're going far. with Boundary this. crossed. <laughs> but it, like, does this release in your head. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God. It felt so... And she pulls her finger out and you're like, <sighs> So it's weird, right? Like, um... You know, that's so. what I am signed myself up for next month. So now yeah. I have something new to do. Yeah. 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 Well, she'll do the mouth. She'll do the tongue. Oh, hold on. You're going to yeah. Anthony? Yes. Very cool. Yeah. 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 I don't know that he does the nose part, but he will put his hands all up in your mouth. Oh, yeah. She yeah. does that too. It's awesome. It's and like, well, after it's awesome. Oh, I need that. And my wife, so I'll give her, like, I'll learn what she does. So I'll give her, we call it face rubs. And I'll start working, and she holds so much tension here, and I'll just start pressing. Like, no, stop! Yeah, or here, yeah, yeah. in her neck, you know? her jaw, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but like she worked. I was there for three hours the first day, almost three hours the second time. Wow! And there was an hour of just neck work because she was like, "Lean your head forward," and she's like, uh, "What is this trapezius?" Mm-hmm. Deltoid trapezius. She's like, mm-hmm. "You move your head forward, but your trapezius doesn't lengthen at all." I said. It's been like a rock my whole life. I hold so much stress there, right? Mm. So that's like been her focus, just like digging in there. And it's still tender because she was brutal. Yeah. But anyhow, you know, so there's another gratitude. I'm grateful that I can go ask a 70-year-old woman beat the shit out of me every week. (laughs) That's good. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. All right. Who's got the bowl? Kyle, pass me the bowl.